Welcome to Women's Retirement Radio. I'm your host, Russ Thornton, and today excited to be joined by a uh, friend and colleague of a few years now, uh, Jim Anderson. Uh, Jim is uh, the founder and owner of a uh, college planning and funding consultancy called uh, Making College Worth It. Uh, Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, Russ. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you could join us. Um, I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation and share it with our listeners. Um, I'm kind of talk, preaching to the choir here when I, I I mentioned what a complex and expensive proposition uh, college can be for folks. So I'm really really happy that you're here to share a little bit of your wisdom and experience and expertise with us. Well, glad glad to be here and. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of things. Uh, it takes time to learn about uh, the college planning process. I, I really got into it, you know, kind of like everyone else as as a parent. Um, and I have four kids and my first two were my uh, learning experiment kids. So I learned a lot about college planning through them. And uh, when I got to my third, it was like, why does everyone have to have this same learning curve to understand all the schools that are out there, uh, where the money's hiding, and it hides in different places depending on your family's financial situation and also on your students' um, abilities. It can be academic, it can be athletic, artistic, whatever they are. There's different money out there that I try and uh, you know find for folks. So, uh, but I've been doing this for a little bit over ten years now, and um, I have a ball doing it. <laughs> Well, I'm never. You know, yeah, well, I'm always, I'm always blown away every time you and I speak, just because uh, I just get another little glimpse into the both breadth and depth of knowledge you have around college planning. So, um, I know you just shared a little bit about kind of your background and what led you to where you are today. But if someone asked you at a cocktail party or or whatever the scenario, and, and says, uh, "Hey, Jim, nice to meet you. Tell, you know, can can you explain?" to me what it is you do. I'd, I'd just be curious to hear how you explain it in your own words, because sure. I, I know what I think of when I, I think of you, but um, I think it'd be helpful for our listeners to kind of hear how you explain what it is you do. Um, I help typically high, families with a high school student um, plan, you know, go through the college search process, figure out how to pay for the college actually have that be a part of the search process is how much is this going to cost to go to this school. Um, but more than that, that I found that the finish line isn't getting them into college. It's actually getting them out of college and off of mom and dad's payroll. Um, you know, I've actually just recently, like three weeks ago, my youngest started her, um, her career path. Um, she had just finished up with her master's in environmental engineering, and she is working uh, now for an engineering consulting firm um, over in Los Angeles. So, um, yeah, they're all, all actually she's been off the payroll for a while because she was able to fund her master's program through being a teaching assistant. Um, so I didn't have to pay anything. So there are little opportunities like that. But the finish line is getting them off of the payroll, letting them start there. Uh, productive careers um, and being independent. That's what everybody wants. Um, so that's that's where the goal is. But making sure that they're ready for that first job is a critical piece. So understanding the coursework that they need, the skills they need to uh, to attain so that they can match up basically with the um, the job openings for what they're wanting to do. Well, my congratulations well, on... Party. Yeah, and well, my congratulations on uh, on your youngest uh, getting launched into her uh, professional career. That's that's fantastic for for her and for you and your wife. Um, I guess a, a follow up question I have, um, and, I, and I'm asking purely out of ignorance. Um, I you know based on my experience, um, some people, uh, well, well, I shouldn't say some. Different people take very different approaches to. Uh, college for their kids or even their grandkids. Um, some it's like, um, you know, where, where do you want to go? Let's go do some, let's go make some visits. Let's send out, you know, anywhere from three to five or more applications. And once we get to a short list of where, you know, where you've been accepted, then we'll decide, um, 
you know, where we're going and, you know, we'll figure out the, the financial component uh, later. Um, others kind of fall in the other extreme where it's very driven by, uh, very much driven by the financial component, the costs, um, the, you know, uh, not just tuition, but, you know, room and board and things like that, if, if it's going to be, you know, away from home. Um, and you just raised an interesting uh, couple of points where it's not just figuring out where to go and it's not just figuring out how to pay for it, uh, either out of your own pocket or utilizing funds that may be available from various sources, but it's also thinking about um, where's the best school to align with your interests, your what you know, what you want to study, maybe where you want to pursue a career in. So it sounds like you take a much more holistic approach to college planning than simply saying, um, you know, where do we think you can get in, and how 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 can we afford to pay for it? Would you would you say that's accurate? It, it is. It is. Um, what I try and do is in the questionnaires that um, the families fill in. Uh, the, the kids list basically um, the classes that they're good at and the ones they like. And I kind of go with that. Um, aside, in addition to areas that everyone thinks that the parents think their students should go to and the students think um, the career they should go to also. But uh, what I've run into is a lot of um, students either have no idea what they want to do, literally none or they have a specific singular thing they want to do. And what I want them to do is to be able to keep looking around. They're 16, 17, 18 years old. They haven't experienced a whole lot. Their core curriculum makes them take basically five of their six classes are set. So they really haven't explored a whole lot. So I'd like to help them explore a little bit. Um, and, And that's really part of the the fun of doing this job. You know, I found a school up in uh, Hartford, University of Hartford. They have a a major in acoustical engineering. So if you have an interest in music and engineering, that might be something to do. There's uh, New Mexico Tech has a uh, a physics degree where the concentration is studying um, lightning and electrical atmospheric conditions. There's so many really cool things out there that they have no ideas. I didn't even know was out there until I found it. Um, and I'm a little bit older than 18. Um, so it's just so much fun to, to present these ideas. And maybe that's the thing that drives them um, to, you know, being maybe a little more focused in their schooling. Some kids really are kind of um, lost, especially over the last year with, uh, with them learning online. That's been a challenge for a lot of kids. They haven't had the ability to experience a lot. Um, But yeah, I like the students to understand themselves and what they're looking for before I even start looking at the colleges. Um, It's, it's, I do it kind of backwards. I try and find the schools that fit the student rather than trying to find, make the student fit to go to the school. I think it's a little more natural way to do things. And a lot of the hiring managers that I've talked to over the years, they don't even look at where you went to school. They want to make sure that you have the skills and can you work with the people around you. And if you can do those things, you have a really good chance of having a great professional career. So, yeah, that's a that's an interesting perspective and and one that I think actually aligns very much with the work I do in financial planning. But um, that's a maybe a conversation for a different time. So, <laughs> um, so Jim, having having you know introduce some clients to you in the past, having seen uh, at least, you know, indirectly your work with them and some of the success and progress you've made. um, I think it would be helpful for our listeners if you could, at at least at a kind of a high, a high level, give us kind Mm -hmm. of a a walkthrough of the process. um, And what I would love for people to understand, and you've already started to talk about some of the elements, but I'd like for people to understand both uh, the breadth of what's involved. And uh, I think based on maybe some of the things you'll share, there may be some opportunities for us to dig into some of the details a little bit further. Sure. Sure. So um, the first thing is getting questionnaires filled in. Um, It helps me, first of all, have something on paper so that I can reference um, rather than just strictly a conversation. Because believe it or not, when you start talking to, you know, a couple of families a week, 
um, they kind of blend together. So <laughs> I like to have the written word um, as a reminder. Um, so I get those filled in uh, from the family. I, I review them with them um, when I'm going over my whole process of what I do. So it's kind of one big meeting. Um, I'll go through my process. Um, if they're comfortable with my process and my price and all that, and they say, okay, let's go through the questionnaires. We'll go through those. And I'll look for um, some inconsistencies. Sometimes I'll have families that say they, you know, they're pretty well, well off. They can afford a seventy or $80,000 school, but they say, I only want to spend 30. Uh, but the schools on their list are going to cost them $80,000. So I have to figure, I ask them, do you want to me to be looking at $30,000 schools or $80,000 schools and, you know, kind of get those types of things out of the way so that I'm actually looking in the direction that's uh, in their best interests. Um, all of this is about being in their best interests. And the way I know that is one of the pieces of the questionnaires is a ranking system. So I have 11 different factors that families rank and, um, you know, that's what I use when I start my search process uh, to find the schools and the programs and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so when I go through those that I build, basically now it's up to about a 250, 260 page book of personalized information um, for that student. And then on the financial side, different um, funding opportunities for that family. Um, I always include um, borrowing because you never know when borrowing makes the most sense to do. Um, you know, in, in my personal example, you know, I, I could have, should have borrowed more back in 2007, 8, 9, and 10 when the stock market was um, hitting lows um, and then pay it back once it recovered. Um, so I want to make sure families understand those things. I've made mistakes from my experiences. Um, and I want to make sure that the families I work with don't make the same mistakes. Um, that's a, a critical piece I learned from all my families and pass that information on to the other ones. So I build the plan, goes all the way through the career. I present the book. I actually present it backwards. I start with the career searching and I work my way back to the name of the school. You know, the, the least important part in most cases is the name of the school on the on your diploma. The most important name is your name, that you've gotten that degree, that you have that skill set, that you are now ready to um, tackle that that career that you're heading on. So I'll review the whole book with the family. It takes uh, roughly an hour and a half to two hours to go through, um, and then the ball's in their court. They review the schools that I've selected, which tend to start out being a bit of a shotgun. And as we go through the process of refinement, it'll get to be a closer grouping of schools. They'll learn a whole lot about the whole process and what different schools have to offer. And that can adjust um, the school selection that they have. Um, they might actually even be changing, um, you know, their major. So that could be a part of the whole process. But we go back and forth. Um, Usually right before senior year starts, I like to actually have a sit down with each family and go through um, what schools that they're selecting to apply to. I want to make sure that they have um, a good negotiating school, you know, their dream school, whatever that turns out to be. Um, if there's a, a natural competitor that might offer more aid, um, we want to include them in the list so that, um, you know, maybe we can get a little bit better price. Um, for them, uh, you know, down the road. Um, so we we get that set in usually August or so, July or August, uh, February or February, October 1st, uh, the FAFSA comes out. That's the free application for federal student aid. Um, I've started doing Zoom calls for that um, last year. It worked out really well. So I'm going to continue to do that um, in, the, in the future. Um, we'll go through uh, all the questions, which that's going to be changing over the next couple of years. Um, we'll also do, if they need to, there's another financial aid form for some, um, I guess, more uh, prestigious colleges um, that offer a lot more of their own money. Um, 
So that's called the CSS profile. I'll set up, I, I, I may do one-to-ones on those. It depends on how many families are going to be looking at those particular schools and needing to send it in. So I, I do, we do that, get everything submitted. Um, and then we wait for all the acceptances to come in and they'll get a bunch of acceptances because most of the students that I work with are not applying to the um, Uber elite schools. Some of them are, um, but they're also going to be applying to ones that are a little more uh, safety school. Uh, you know, the Ivy Leagues, it's not a safety school for anybody these days uh, when the acceptance rate is usually 10% all the way down to 3% for like Harvard. Um, so. Then once they all come in and the financial aid awards come in, we can sit down and we can evaluate, make sure we're looking at apples to apples on the money side. Um, and then, you know, then they make their decision and and they're off. Um, now, I am still always available for families who I've been working with, even when they're in college. If they change their mind on something or they need further help on another FAFSA or CSS profile, I am here to help. Um, so, yeah. I'm, that's basically the whole process. Well, I, there's a lot there. Um, and I appreciate you walking us through that. And there's a couple of things I want to come back to, but it sounds like you typically uh, begin working with families and students when they're rising seniors in high school. Did I hear that right? Um, actually, the best time to start, and especially this year, is if you have a sophomore right now. Uh, and the reason I say that is because, you know, on any regular year, January 1st of the sophomore year of your student is when the FAFSA and the CSS profile start accumulating your income numbers for the forms you'll fill in senior year for freshman year of college. So, but this year's even more critical because right now um, they just uh, put in. I guess it was in one of the um, one of the stimulus packages that came out in December, or the one that came out last December. They are simplifying the FAFSA, which is a um, a good headline clickbait. What they're really doing is um, making it where it's yeah, it's a little bit easier. They're going to get rid of a lot of questions people answered no to anyway. But another part of it is they're making it a little more difficult for families with multiple kids in college at the same time, with um, families with divorce. Um, you know, a lot, a few different areas are really going to be challenged. Um, and none of the, the calculators they have actually show those changes yet. So they might be thinking, here's the cost of what it's going to be, but it could actually be a totally different cost, a higher cost. Um, now there is going to be a good thing that's coming out of this, and that is if students get money from outside of their parents, like grandparents or aunts and uncles or you know whoever, um, they are not going to be having that money included on their FAFSA as unearned income. So that's going to be a critical piece too. So funding from uh, grandma and grandpa um, is not going to impact their potential financial aid, need-based aid, uh, the last two years of college. So this is, but this is a critical year because it's the pivot, it's gonna be the pivot year. It's gonna be the first year that happens. So it's um, it's critical to know what those rules are going to be and then how to uh, adjust um, and see if we can make it where we're, we're not gonna get, uh, you know, hit in the side of the head with, uh, you know, from one year to the next. Uh, uh, well, and and I, I don't certainly don't want you to give away your secret sauce or anything like that. Uh, certainly people can reach out and, and discuss their own situation with you if they're interested. But could you speak maybe a little bit more to some of the FAFSA changes that are forthcoming, especially those related to maybe um, maybe divorce? Uh, as you know, a lot of sure. uh, a lot of my clients are women, many of many of whom are are dealing or have dealt with divorce over the years. So how could that uh, impact, uh, let's say, a woman that is, uh, that's going through divorce or is, is uh, recently divorced? Right. So uh, a couple of things. One is they're making a switch from it being uh, the parent that fills in the FAFSA instead of being the one that is um, that has the child reside at their residence 
that extra day of the year. Uh, they're switching it to be the parent who gives the most financial support. So that will that'll kick in as of now, the 2024 school year, but that's the 2023 FAFSA, which is the 2022 income year. So that's why it's critical for that. Um, that and I and I have one family where they're going to be in the middle of it. So they have one year where it's going to be um, one parent is going to be filling in the FAFSA, and unless they're able to, I'm guessing, talk to their divorce attorney and maybe figure out a way to have it be where the lower income parent um, is providing more financial support. I don't know how to do that. I am not a legal professional, so. But if there's a way for them to uh, everyone to agree and have it work that way, um, potentially they keep it at the the one parent, the lower income parent, as um, you know, having both hats. Basically, they 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 have the student that extra day of the year, and somehow they are providing less income. That's going to allow um, their financial numbers to be included rather than the their ex spouse's numbers included. And sometimes it's a big difference between how much um, one parent makes and the other. Um, and in this one family's case, it was like a $20,000 a year difference. So if you assumed it was going to be the same all four years, it could potentially be a $60,000 uh, difference than what you were thinking by the time you get through with four years. So that's a critical piece. Um, on the good side, they are changing child support from being considered income to being considered an asset. How that helps is income can be um, counted up to 47% of the amount um, onto the, uh, well, it's expected family contribution now, they're changing the name to student aid index. Um, I guess it's a little more, it's better descriptive. Uh, but it's changing, so it'll go down to 5.64%. So that could be, a, a large potential savings um, in that area. So there's different little things like that. Um, throw in if this uh, uh, family with divorce um, in their like, rearview mirror or in their <laughs> current situation, um, if they are going to have more than one student going uh, to college at the same time, they are taking away, right now the FAFSA allows um, you to um, take your expected family contribution. And if you have two in college at the same time, you take whatever that number is and you divide it by two. If you have three, you divide it by three. Well, they are getting rid of that division. So that will potentially mean you're paying more um, than you would otherwise have paid. That's gonna depend on the mix of the schools. And that is something that I will take into consideration when I am researching and finding schools. Uh, public Public schools is probably not going to make a whole lot of difference. There might be some exceptions. Private schools, um, it's going to impact um, on a varying degree, depending on the selectivity of the school and how much need-based money they would give. Because, I mean, if your, your expected family contribution normally would be 60000 for one child, and now you have two, and that would cut it to thirty. That could be a significant need-based package that you um, are giving up by now being 60 instead of 30. So those are parts of the equation that I take into consideration on my my researching of various colleges. So that's, that's kind of what goes on for, for families with divorce. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So if I understood you correctly, so with this new, them doing away with the um, division by number of children. If you've got two or more children in school, where previously you would divide by the number of children to get the um, expected family contribution, that goes away. So now, if you've got two or three children in school, to use your example of sixty thousand dollars, that's now, that would now be considered sixty thousand dollars per child, instead of being divided by two. Let's say for two kids, and to be thirty thousand dollars a piece. Right. Right. So if you let's say you're sending your kids to to UGA, that's not going to be an issue. Because right. 30 is not going to get you anything, 60 is not going to get you anything. But if you were sending your kids to Emory, then that could make a difference. So it all again, it all depends on the school selection 
as to whether it makes a difference or not. And, and part of that's gonna be the academics of the student. And then part of it's gonna be the finances of their parents. And, you know, the plus you also have the kicker of, um, you know, parents getting remarried and then, um, you know, step parents having um, their income and assets included on the FAFSA. And if they have kids, who were, who's who's the custodial parent for those kids? And are they going to school at the same, well, yeah, at the same time? Yeah, so it's it's just, it, it can get really confusing as, um, you know, especially families who have been uh, divorced for a little while and they've been remarried and it, yeah. So it, it can get kind of confusing um, to figure out, um, you know, who's on first basically. <laughs> Well, and I think that's a, a a great a great example of the benefit of reaching out and getting some assistance from someone like yourself that can know the questions to ask and know the things to look out for and be a little bit more cognizant of you know some of these hoops that may be necessary to jump through, if not now, um, in the near future with some of these forthcoming changes, like, uh, like, right. like most, like most things, um, people don't know what they don't know. Um, and I, I would say the same of myself. So when it comes to, um, really getting into the specifics of college planning, uh, both from, uh, selecting the right school or, or the best school, I should say, and then figuring out how to get it paid for in the best uh, manner possible. I, I think, uh, again, I'm just always blown away by all of the intricacies and details that you bring to bear when we, when we talk about this sort of thing, Jim, I'm just, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, one, one thing that came to mind hearing you talk about all of this is um, I hear more and more, um, or I have heard more and more that, um, you know, Undergrad, uh, undergrad is no longer the typical four years. Like more and more students are taking five plus years to get through undergrad. And I suspect there's a variety of factors that could contribute to that. But I would just be interested to get your uh, input. And in. is that something you've seen? Or do you think that is largely addressable through better planning up front to figure out, you know, what, where students' interests lie, what they want to study, what they maybe want to do post-college? Um, how do you how do you see that kind of factoring into your work, uh, as well as kind of the, the the bigger financial planning picture for the families you're working with? Yeah, I, I would say over the past few years, um, I have started to see the four year graduation rates go up. Um, some of them um, have like uh, Louisiana Tech a couple of years ago was thirty five percent. They're up to forty two percent locally. I would like to see them go higher. Um, case in point, Kennesaw State, which is you know close by here, they are up to 18%. A couple of years ago, they were 14%. So they're making the right, they're going in the right direction. Um, I think they have, in my opinion, I think they have a hard time getting classes for all the kids that need the classes that they need to, to get through. Um, I had one student who um, was going to go there, went to the orientation, and uh, she only got one of her five classes that she had requested. Uh, she was waitlisted on four of them. And that is a recipe for not graduating in four years. Um, so I think that's probably part of it. Um, another part is I think there are a lot of kids who may not quite be college ready. Um, and, I, and I know people are saying that the test scores are flawed and all that. They're, they're weighted towards the wealthier families. But ACT typically stated that um, a 20 or better and you are pretty much ready for college. Um, there are a decent number of schools in Georgia where, um, you know, a lot of their kids, 25 percent or maybe more, don't even have a 20 on their test score. So. They're they're maybe starting out in some remedial classes, and those are going to count as credits, especially against, let's say, um, they are still HOPE scholarship eligible. Um, they're going to burn through their HOPE scholarship credits on some remedial classes that aren't going to count towards graduation. So they will take more than 120, and that will make it where they will take longer uh, to graduate. Most majors are 120 credit hours. Um, engineering. 
And then there's a couple other random ones that can be more in the mid 120s up to mid 130s even. So it, it can be a bit of a challenge to get through, but a lot of it is, um, are they ready? And are there too many kids going to the school that the support staff at that school, faculty and any other administrators, um, do, they, do they have enough bandwidth to handle the number of students coming in? Um, I think those are the, the primary issues. I've, I've seen bigger jumps in four-year graduation rates at schools that kind of keep their headcount steady. Um, so I think they're, they, they know how many kids they can handle and they kind of stick to their to their uh, you know plan and and they seem to do a little better. Um, yeah. But yeah, graduation rates critical because you know it's not just how much you're paying per year, but it's also the number of years to get through. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just answer, I find that, that right? yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, you you would know better than I would, but I, I your perspective is helpful and appreciated because whenever I have college planning discussions with my clients, whether it's for uh, children or grandchildren, um, you know, one thing I always bring up is, do we want to assume, you know, undergrad in four years, undergrad in five years, or you know, some other number. Um, and it always makes for some interesting discussions. So I was just interested to get kind of a little bit more uh, experiential feedback uh, based on your work with families and what you've seen. So, um, and it does, I'm happy to hear, it sounds like they're, some of the numbers are getting better, but it sounds like they've got a long way to go too. So. Um, and and the numbers are actually kind of flawed because there can be kids who, who um, you know, there's another thing they have called fr- freshman retention rate. So that's how many students complete their freshman year and come back for their sophomore year. Um, and those students kind of fall um, fall out of the calculation. Um, so if they transfer to a different school and they still graduate in four years, they don't end up on anybody's number because they're not at the school they started at. And since and. So they're not on the originating school and they're not on the transfer school as being four years. So the numbers might be low, um, especially schools that have a a retention rate in the 70s. Um, You know, that can be kind of hard. You you compare them to uh, retention rates at, you know, like a Vanderbilt or or an Emory, um, you know, in the 90s, up mid to upper 90s percent stay at that school. Um, so you don't, you know, those kids are all going to be counted, but the ones that transfer to a different school, they kind of fall out of that calculation. So it's really kind of hard to, to really figure that out. Another number that's a really tough one to figure out that I provide for families is well, what kind of crime happens on campus and the federal numbers that are, that are, um, put out, they include, um, every student, that's there, not just the ones who live on campus, but the ones who live off campus um, and the graduate students. So if it's a big school, a school let's say a Harvard, where um, they have under 10,000 undergrads and they have over 10,000 graduate students, they're counting both of them together. And that really, I don't think should be that way. So it's, I, I look at, I, you know, I was a math major. I look at numbers all the time. And I try and put them in proper context for families. Um, so that's, you know, just an observation I've made over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. Um, Jim, you shared a lot. And I, I think um, I think our listeners are, are getting a pretty clear idea of what it is you do <laughs> and how you help families. But I'd be curious to hear um, in your words, what do you what do you think is the biggest challenge that you help the families you work with address or solve? I, I would say um, setting expectations. Uh, I have a, a lot of families who, um, well, they're, they're kind of biased. They think their child should go to the most difficult school possible. I've had some families where the students are getting a low three point something GPA and the school that they want them to go to is MIT. <laughs> And that's just not going to happen. So I have to kind of reset um, the whole process as far as 
you know, academically, are you going to get in? But it's not just, are you going to get in? Are you going to graduate? Um, I probably can count on my hand the number of kids who have, that I've worked with who have transferred to another school um, unintentionally, the ones who, who had not planned on transferring schools. Uh, and I've worked with hundreds of kids. So it, it happens very infrequently that they transfer. Usually it tends to be homesickness. They went too far away from home. Um, it's not the major unless they make some radical departure in the major. But really trying to get them to start thinking, you know, the academics of where they're going is more important than the athletics of the school <laughs> where they're going. Um, they get enamored by the, the, um, the marketing and the peer pressure. And I try and get them to be um, in their own world with their priorities and what's important to that family. And then finding the schools that fit what they're, what they're really looking for um, and, and peel away all that extra who, who's playing football on a Saturday night or, um, you know, my friend Billy's going to this school or my girlfriend Susie's going here and, and trying to get past that and realize, you know, they don't even offer a major in what you want to do. So how can you go to that school? Um, you know, I get to ask the hard questions that parents might have a hard time um, getting their students to listen. Um, I get to wear the college planner per expert hat as opposed to the dad hat. And I can ask the dad questions as the expert and I'll, I'll hopefully you get an answer. Um, and, and it kind of, you know, I, I kind of take on some of that, um, that ground for families where, uh, where it can be a tough conversation to have with your student, but I'll lay it out. I've actually sat down with a couple of students and said, you can't go here. You're going to take on too much debt. You're going to be living at home. You're going to make $30,000 a year and you're going to have $100,000 of student debt. This is not going to work. The numbers don't work for you to be independent. And I'm sure independence is something that you want. When you graduate, you don't want to come back home and work and, and live at home and only have your job be within 25 miles uh, of your where your parents live. So let's find a way to make it work where, yeah, you're going to have an affordable amount of debt to pay off um, and you can live where the job is. Um, so there's really some really great opportunities that maybe aren't located in the Atlanta area for a student. So, um, so it's, it's hard. Those are hard conversations for families to have, but I can kind of stick my neck out and, and have those conversations and, and not have some of the pushback that I know I've had as a parent, and I'm sure most other parents have had with their teenagers. Yeah, hearing you reference that makes me think that you're helping with college planning, but also like a a compassionate but tough guide, and maybe a little maybe a little counseling and therapy thrown in there uh, as well. A um, little bit, but, but clearly, clearly important work. You mentioned earlier, Jim. You've worked with hundreds of kids um, and their families. Is there is there a favorite success story that comes to mind for you? Uh yeah, I would say, uh, and it kind of fits in with your audience. Um, there was one family where um, where dad had passed away um, when uh, the daughter was in uh, in high school, and mom could only work part time, or she would lose her social security. Now they had a lot; they had they had insurance that paid out, so there was you know a good nest egg available, um, but obviously not wanting to spend it where you don't need to because, you know, mom's in her forties and hopefully she's got another, you know, forties years left to go um, and enjoy life. So um, we were able to, she, she ended up going to UGA. Um, and I know the first two years when I helped them with the FAFSA um, that they were paying $500 for tuition fees room and board to go to UGA. Um, so sometimes you can take a horrible situation like losing a parent and make it be um, a little bit easier um, for everyone. Um, and, and basically what that entailed was um, 
kind of having an idea of what the school would charge, although um, it ended up being way lower, but it ended up lower because we got the FAFSA in in October uh, before all the financial, all the endowed scholarships are handed out. So they knew that um, this family was considered a high need family and they were even in spite of their assets. And that's because there's a part of the FAFSA calculation that if you earn under a certain amount of money or you are considered a displaced worker, which would be a, uh, in this case, the mom um, not being able to earn her, um, you know, a full wage because she would lose her, her social security. uh, They had a zero expected family contribution. And that allowed them to be a very high need family. She did, she's a very good academic student, um, and it worked out perfectly for their situation. Um, you know, they don't always end up that good, <laughs> but I do what I can to, to cut costs wherever possible, either by planning ahead, you know, knowing, um, you know, what sections and what textbooks to get and getting them early and not waiting until you get on campus to get textbooks. Um, you know, that could save 500 bucks a semester. Um, you know, if you're not taking a car, check your home, your auto insurance. If they're far enough away, they're an away student. I had one family saved $600 a year doing that. So there's little things that add up that can make it be, um, you know, less uh, financially strenuous for, for everyone. Less student debt for the, for the student to pay off or the parent if they take uh, parent plus loans, or they borrow from somewhere else, or they spend their assets and have to work longer. So my goal is to have it be the lowest cost and the least financial impact to um, everyone involved, yet get the skills you need to perform the job that you want to perform. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I, that's uh, that's an interesting um, and, and clearly a, a challenging situation, but what a, what a great outcome. Um, so this, you know, this podcast and these conversations, ultimately, I want to kind of tie them back to um, retirement for women. Um, sure. And with that in mind, um, I'd like to first maybe start, Jim, and get your thoughts on retirement. So when you think of the word retirement, what comes to mind for you personally? Um, well, let's, let's assume it's a job you want to retire from, because Right now, I'm in a job that I don't want to retire from. <laughs> Maybe I I can downsize the time, the amount of time I spend doing the job. But um, you know, just making it be where you have the opportunity to do what you want to do. If you want to be able to volunteer, and and you have a, a passion to do something like that to have the, the money that allows you to the flexibility to do something like that, um, I think is, is a critical thing. Um, and, and I kind of look, I, I, I kind of look like I am on the, um, the path to that for a lot of families um, because the less money they spend on college, obviously the more money they're going to have as they approach and go through retirement. Um, and that could, mean that maybe you can retire earlier or you end up being a little more well off and you can take that extra vacation that you weren't going to take otherwise uh who knows what it could turn out to be um but yeah i think it's the ability to 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 be able to do what you want to do whether it's you know visiting relatives you know traveling abroad um you know moving to an area that you want to retire in whatever it is to get you that that uh, flexibility to to be able to experience things that you've been putting off because you had that full time job that uh, required a commitment that didn't allow you to do those types of things. Well, first of all, congrats! I, I think it's fantastic that you're doing work that you enjoy and find rewarding, and and arguably when you're doing that, it's it's maybe not quite the same as work work. Um, <laughs> But I, I heard you talking about being able to do what you want, when and with whom. So to me, that sounds like this idea of choice or independence, uh, which which come up a lot when I discuss retirement with people. So um, um, so that's uh, that's a, 
a common thread that I, I am able to, you know, see carried through a lot of these conversations, um, mm-hmm. tying, you know, tying, uh, tying it back to women specifically. Um, I'm just curious, you know, both, both as, um, someone that's in a, uh, in, um, a long-term marriage, uh, someone that works with families, um, uh, you know, the story you just shared a moment ago is, is indicative of one. What do you think, uh, what do you see as the biggest challenge that women face when they're planning for their own retirement? Um, I think it can be understanding all the financials. Um, from what I've read, um, men tend to kind of dominate on that side of things um, with the knowledge base. And then if that knowledge base leaves, then it kind of leaves them high and dry. Um, Women also tend to live longer. So that can be a bit of a challenge that the same dollars are going to have to be stretched further. And in spite of the the, um, Equal Pay Act, I think it's from 1963, there are some discrepancies in salaries uh, between the sexes um, that can make it more difficult to save uh, a similar amount of money in the same time frame. Um, and then there's also, I think part of it could be um, the level of risk um, women take can feel comfortable taking compared to the level of risk that men feel comfortable taking. So that could mean um, you know, a difference in, in their retirement amounts. So there's a lot of different little factors that all tie in to make it be where uh, it can be more challenging um, for uh, a woman on her own um, in retirement. Yeah. All, all great perspectives. And, and thanks for uh, sharing that. Uh, and, and to bring it kind of back home to what it is you do. And, and I think you kind of touched on this just a moment ago, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the impact that your work in college planning for families um, makes as they're, as these families are planning for or transitioning into retirement? Well, uh, so the area that the, the, the uh, demographic where the, where student debt is increasing the quickest is the 55 to 65 year old demographic. So that typically is parents um, helping take on student debt so that their students, their children can go to the college of their dreams. Um, And then that debt, obviously it's treated differently than a mortgage debt. It can be very difficult to to get rid of. You have to pay it, (laughs) Um, at least as of today. Um, so that can be a challenge when when you're looking to um, to retire and all of a sudden you have this extra uh, however many hundreds of dollars a month payment that's going to stick with you until either it's paid off or, you know, 20, 25 years for, for the loan forgiveness to kick in. Um, it, that can be a challenge to um, to your retirement. It could extend your number of years working. Um, you know, maybe significantly depends. I've seen some some debts that are rather high, um, and that can be a, a, a definite um, headwind towards getting to those financial independence goals. And I think that's where my services come in handy. Is I can be the pragmatic one to say, you don't want to be taken on this kind of debt. I, I found these other schools that are going to cost half as much for your family. You might not have to take this student debt out as a parent. Or actually, one thing I did find out, there are some private student loan companies where if you have uh, parent plus loans, you can have um, and and you um, refinance them into the onto the private side, you can have the owner of that debt switched over to the student. <laughs> so I'm not saying it works for everyone. That's something that's would you would want to talk to your financial planner about. A lot of these issues that I talk about, I talk about how they are related to the financial aid forms and, and various other opportunities, but it's really up to the family with their financial professionals to make the determination as to how it fits into their big picture plan. Um, I, I look at a narrow slice of the finances 
um, and I do not I do not give out to the financial advice. I explain opportunities, and I try and make it be where I'm also talking to the financial planner um, involved or the wealth manager um, to make sure that everybody understands. Okay, here's how this affects the uh, financial aid form. Um, so you see how it fits into the big picture, like in my case. So my father-in-law passed away when my youngest was a senior in high school. We got the inheritance and all of a sudden we were gonna look wealthier. Um, what, since my daughter was going to a school that only required the FAFSA, they don't count home equity. So we paid off our mortgage. It saved us $7,500 a year for her to go to college by doing that uh, based on the school that she went to. So, but that's something I would say is like, if you do this, pay off some, all, whatever of your mortgage, you're going to get a, you're going to get an increased amount of need-based aid. But that's not always the case because you might have an income that's too high. So if you got to look at the whole picture to make sure that what you're saying is going to happen could happen. And I'm not going to tell people to, I'm not going to suggest things to people that aren't going to help them. So if there was no benefit for us to pay off the mortgage, I wouldn't have paid off the mortgage. Only when you know there's going to be some kind of benefit, is it even potentially worthwhile to, uh, to uh, inform the family of that. So, you know, it's kind of a big tie in how can we get the cost to be lower and less of an impact on the parents and their retirement plans. Um, and, and student debt is a big one. So trying to eliminate um, that. And, and the student debt on the parent side, the parent plus loan is a couple of percent higher than it is for the student. So instead of looking at three and three quarters percent, you're looking at six to seven percent. And that's going to you know, cause the payment to be higher and, and just have a little more financial strain on, on paying it off. So. I guess that's how it ties into retirement. Yeah, I um, <laughs> no, that's a great. That, that's a, actually a, a super thoughtful and helpful perspective. Um, I, I really want to underline something you said that you know you, you described that you you kind of focus and work in a very narrow slice of a person's overall financial picture, but I think you also gave some really um, great examples of how. Uh, a decision in the college planning arena could could have uh, meaningful impacts in other areas of a person's financial life. Um, you know, uh, whether that's using money to pay down the mortgage to preserve existing financial aid or other things like that. I mean, that's frankly, that's not something that, you know, maybe would have crossed my radar. So that's why I see such value in, you know, getting input and guidance from someone like you along the way when it when it comes to you know, planning for and figuring out the best way to, to fund and to keep uh, the funding, um, you know, as reasonable as possible when it comes to college. So um, yeah, that's, that's super helpful. Um, as we, as we start to wrap up the conversation uh, today, Jim, something I always like to ask is um, I know you love what you do. It sounds like you stay super busy uh, working with parents and their students. Um, but how do you most enjoy spending your time when you've got an hour or two to yourself? Oh boy. Um, well, yeah, I have three grandchildren that are in the area. So, um, and actually my, my wife's out of town and, um, my daughter and her husband went to a wedding. So I babysat my four-year-old, two-year-old and four-month-old. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you, and you lived to tell about it. Good for I, you. I lived, barely lived to tell about it. <laughs> Wow, that's all. Oh that's, yeah, that's... the grandkids is one. Um, another thing that I really am into is, um, I guess it's a ha habit I picked up in high school. It's um, I have a turntable in my office here, and I am spinning vinyl while I am uh, making my plans for families. So I have my part of my collection of vinyl here, um, and it goes anywhere from uh, I don't know. Jimi Hendrix to Buddy Guy to Black Keys, Aerosmith, um, you know, Miles Davis. I have quite a variety of music and uh, whatever the mood um, asks for, I can put it on and, and listen to it while I'm doing my thing here. 
So, what is always um, looking for a good vinyl purchase? Yeah, well, I'm I, I'm not a vinyl guy, but I do love music. Um, I, I maybe have an unhealthy um, love of music because I I'm always listening to something. Um, when you're working, what's your what's your favorite background music to have on um, when you're when you're working? So my my latest artist that I am really focused on is Buddy Guy. He's a blues guitar player who um, influenced um, Eric Clapton and Stevie Ray Vaughan and Keith Richards and Jeff Beck, uh, some of the greatest guitar players ever. So um, it's pretty cool. He's got a a bar up in Chicago where he plays uh, still. He's like almost 85. Wow. Uh, yeah. And he, this, okay. So they had a PBS documentary on him and he's he, growing up as a, a young man, young boy, actually, he was uh, picking cotton in uh, was it Mississippi or Louisiana. I forget. Um, but he went from that lifestyle to um, when uh, he actually got to play in front of the president of the United States, play guitar. So quite, quite a story for this uh, gentleman. Um, that's just unbelievable that somebody um, from such meager means was able to make it to, I, I would think, one of the pinnacles of being a musician, uh, to being, being able to play in front, of, uh, in front of the sitting president of the United States. So wow. he's one of, my, one of my heroes right now in the music industry. Yeah, Big that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. We might have to we might have to share a link to uh, some Buddy Guy uh, music in the uh, show notes for this episode. Um, sure. Yeah, he's got a well. Uh, yeah, he's really good. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we've covered a lot today, Jim, and we maybe need to have a part two at some point because we didn't get uh, we didn't get into like the you know supposed plans for student debt loan forgiveness and um, you know uh, by you know the current presidential administration and things like that which you know not not to be political but I'd just be interested to hear your thoughts on that and sure. some other things as well but uh, wrapping up today we uh, we covered a lot of ground if there were one thing that our listeners could take away from our discussion today what would you want that one thing to be um, I would say that yeah, it sounds like I do a lot, and I, I hope I do a lot for the families I work for. Um, but I don't charge a lot. I have purposely made it be where I I make it where it's affordable, so that um, I have some families that are on a payment plan. Um, I have a low initial price. I charge two thousand dollars. The average price for my range of experience is $3,500. And I actually read there's some guy, a a Yale grad who his company charges $85,000 a year. (laughs) Holy cow. Yeah. So that is not my clientele. (laughs) My clientele, if if I had families, the ones that I enjoy working with the most are the ones who need me the most. And if you're making $400,000, Okay, I enjoy working with you and helping you, you know, solve all the different problems um, as far as the academics and everything go and finding the schools that fit the price range that you want. But I really, really helps my my heart's heartstring tugs at those families that are going to have a really hard time paying for college and, and showing them, you know, here's how it can work. You can go. Maybe it's a little bit different than you thought, or maybe it's a school you haven't heard of, but they have a great, they have a better four-year graduation rate. They're going to cost less than going to a school in-state. Um, so whatever it is, um, you know, it's the families that really need me that I enjoy working with the most. So, well, and, and since our first conversation, however many years ago that's been, I. I could immediately identify that you had a real heart for this and that's, you know, that's, that's fantastic. Both, both for you because of the joy and fulfillment you get from doing this work, but also from the families that, you know, you get an opportunity to work with and serve. And um, yeah, I'm I'm glad you shared that. And, um, and, and I should have asked earlier, but uh, I I do want people to know that, yeah, you're, you're accessible, affordable and um, 
happy to help. One one follow up question to that. I know uh, I know you're in the Atlanta area, um, like I am. Do you work just with people here locally? Do you work with people regionally or across the country? Or what what works best for you as far as where people are located? Uh, I most of my families are local, but I do have. Um, you know, I have a family right now that's up in the Philadelphia area that I'm working with. I have a family in the uh, Chicago area. Um, uh, I have some in the West Coast. I have, I have had Texas, Louisiana, Florida, North Carolina, Virginia. I mean, Ohio. I've been all over the place. Um, so it's not a, it's not an issue, especially now that most of us are getting comfortable with the Zoom process. Um, that I don't, we don't have to actually uh, meet in person. I do end up mailing the books that I put together to them. Um, and then we review them over Zoom. So it, yeah, I think it works pretty well. Um, but yeah, I can do that. Um, you know, the, the rewarding part, I, and going back to that a little bit, is it's amazing to me how different some of these kids are in, in what they want to do. Like, you know, I have one who is a concert clarinet player, a clarinetist. Um, I have one who wants to manage a horse farm. She's a D1 equestrian rider. Um, it's they they just they're I have another one who's interested in zoology, one that is looking at um, astrophysics. You know, they're not just and then there's some that are cybersecurity. Um, they they didn't really understand cybersecurity when we started working with them, but I kind of explain it to them and, and they think, Hey, that's, that's pretty cool. Cause they want to do computer programming. So I stretch them out and show them how many different ways you can use computer programming. Um, but just seeing what they, what their interests turn into is, is so much fun. Um, and, and no, no family is alike to another family. Everyone's their own fingerprint. And, um, you know, it's just fun, you know, helping them through their um, their progression to to uh, to that finish line. And, and based on some of the example schools you gave earlier, too, it sounds like there's a there's literally a program for everyone out there. Um, if they just know what it is they want to do and, you know, maybe get some help from someone like you to right. find the right place to pursue what's important to them. So I. Yep. I applaud you. I think it's I think it's fantastic, meaningful, important work. Um, and, and clearly it has a positive financial component when you can help a family save money. But I think even more importantly the, than the financial component is, is, you know, as you mentioned at the outset of our conversation, helping put a, a student on the path, not just to a uh, college degree, but uh, more importantly to, you know, successfully launching into his or her career and, and, getting off the family payroll, as you, as you said, um, and, you know, help, helping them, you know, become, you know, independent, productive adults, which I, I think is what most students want. And I think that's what most parents want of their students. So I, I think it's, I think it's fantastic work. I, I think it's fascinating, interesting work. And I, I always enjoy talking with you, Jim, and uh, we need to probably do it more often than we, we have been lately, but um, clearly, people are going to hear this and they're probably going to want to reach out and learn more or see if uh, you can help them or their, their family, or, or maybe they, they know a family that could use your help. What's the best way for people to either to learn more about you or to get in touch if they'd like to discuss their own situation further? Yeah, well, there's, there's multiple ways. Um, I have a website. It's making college worth it.com. Um, on there is my contact information. Um, which my phone number is 404-545-1369. And my email address is jimanderson at makingcollegeworthit.com. And well, I do uh, a free consultation. So you can decide whether you want to work with me after, you know, we talk more. I don't know how much more I can say than what I said in, in this one hour uh, podcast, but um yeah, and maybe as it relates to each family's individual circumstances rather than just in more generalities. So, Yeah. Well, uh, clearly, if anyone listening to this wants to reach out to Jim or learn more, feel welcome to get in touch with me. I'll be happy to connect you or, uh, or you can reach out to Jim directly. We'll include his uh, website, phone number, and email address in the show notes for this episode. So uh, anybody that's interested should not have any trouble at all 
uh, getting a hold of Jim. Uh, Jim, thank you again. This has been great. Um, I'm, I'm really happy we could uh, share our conversation with our listeners today. So I, um, I wanted to say thank you. And, and thank you for helping me get, uh, get the word out um, to all the families out, uh, out in, in the Atlanta area and beyond. Yeah. Well, and uh, to all of you out there listening, thanks again. Um, This is Russ Thornton. This has been Women's Retirement Radio, and we look forward to catching up with you again on our next episode. It's Russ again. And before you go, I want to provide a brief disclosure. You should consult a financial advisor familiar with the specific circumstances of your unique financial situation before making any financial decisions. Nothing in this broadcast constitutes a solicitation for the sale or purchase of any securities. Any mentioned rates of return are historical or hypothetical in nature and are not a guarantee of future returns. I'm a financial advisor and an investment advisor representative of Wealthcare Capital Management, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor based in Richmond, Virginia. The views discussed in this podcast are my own and may not be consistent with or represent those of wealth care capital management.